Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here, especially those who are visiting with us today. It's great to have uh, friends and family and other guests with us today. Uh, I know a number of our members are away. They're seeing other family or they've got other things on. But very well done for being here this morning, especially I think virtually everyone who was at our house yesterday is here today. So I think you should get a medal, which is that's fantastic. Right, we're going to be in that passage from John's Gospel today. So please do have your Bibles open there. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get into this morning's passage. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you uh, that we can come here this morning, on this beautiful Sunday morning, uh, and hear from your word, hear you speak to us. We pray that you do that today. We pray that we would know Christ in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I'm just finding my notes. There we go. (laughs) This is when you realize that your notes haven't updated. And you've only got half a sermon on your iPad. (laughs) This is going to be interesting. Excuse me just while I find it. I've usually got it saved in one more place. And she just loves technology. Oh, joy. Here we go. Anyway, let's get going anyway. We will be fine. It's God's word. You can't do much worse than that. Here we go. Well, during our Christmas services at Grace, we've been looking at this passage in John's Gospel. And we've been highlighting different aspects of what this passage teaches us about the Christmas story. It is John the Apostle's Christmas. He was an eyewitness of everything that Jesus said and did. He was a close friend of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. But the way he writes his Christmas story is very different to what we're familiar with uh, in the gospel accounts of Christmas time. With John, there's no shepherds, there's no wise men, there's no angels, there's no manger, there's no sheep and donkeys and ox and that sort of thing. Instead, John kind of gives us a behind the scenes look, kind of pulling back the cosmic curtain at what is really going on at Christmas time. So we heard that Jesus is the Word, Uh, He is the one who comes from the Father to bring the Father's creative power and new life into the world. We also heard uh, yesterday that Jesus is the light. He is God's light to the world who helps us see clearly both who God is, who we are, and how we get back to God. This morning what I want to look at is the description of Jesus as the Son of God. It's a description we find uh, at least twice in these 18 verses. We find it first in verse 14. Encourage you to look there with me, either in, in a Bible or on your sheets. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
We also find it again in verse 18. In verse 18 we read, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, of course, if you're following along, you'll realize the word son isn't actually there in verse 18, at least in the ESV translation we usually use here at Grace, and that's strictly correct. It's, a, it's an accurate way of translating the original language, but the sense of what it is saying is that, God, that Jesus is the only son from the Father, which is why most of the Bibles we might be familiar with do translate it as the son. So the NIV No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, he has made him known. But what is actually meant by Jesus being the Son of God? We might be also familiar with the older way of putting it, the only begotten Son of God. What do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about Jesus that way? It's not clear, even to many Christians, what that actually means. A recent study that was conducted, that was published this month by Lifeway Research in the U.S., said that over 80% of American adults believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but only 40% believe that he actually pre-existed being born in Bethlehem. So clearly there's a lot of confusion about what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. I wonder what the percentages would be here in Australia. I think we also forget what an offensive idea it is that Jesus is called the Son of God. Uh, in Islam, it's, it's a blasphemous idea to refer to Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, the Quran is explicit in many places. I'll read to you from Surah 19 from the Quran. They say, this is talking about Christians, The most merciful has taken for himself a son. You have done an atrocious thing. The heavens almost rupture therefrom, and the earth splits open, and the mountains collapse in devastation that they attribute to the most merciful a son. And it is not appropriate for the most merciful that he should take a son. There is no one in the heavens and earth but that he comes to the most merciful as a servant. It's an offensive idea that Jesus is the son, clearly. Even in Jesus' own day, it was only kings and emperors who called themselves the Son of God. People like Julius Caesar. Uh, They also, the the imagined gods of Jupiter and Zeus, it was believed that they had children as well, and they inhabited the spiritual world. But for an itinerant preacher from a blue-collar family in a regional area to start calling himself the Son of God, well, that's, at the very least, that's pretentious. To Jesus' own people, the idea was deeply, deeply offensive. It was outrageous. We're told in John 10 that when Jesus identified himself like that, they tried to stone him to death. And he, he had a chat with them, and then they decided they were going to arrest him instead, all for claiming that he was the one with the Father as the Son of God. But the Bible's clear that Jesus is not only really and completely God, but that he is also as we say, the only begotten Son of the Father. What I'd like to do this morning is show you what this means and why it matters. I'm going to cover the theme out of the five headings you've got there in the service outline this morning. We'll go through them very briefly. And they'll also be up on the screen for us to follow along. First thing we want to say about Jesus' sonship, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, is all about how close he is to the Father. 
Jesus' sonship is about closeness with the Father. We need to be clear that when Jesus, the Son of God, uh, when Jesus is the Son of God, we don't mean that, that God had a wife and they got together and had a little baby boy and called him Jesus. Because we're not talking about divine biology, we're talking about theology, we're talking about the knowledge of God. The first thing the Bible is clear about when it says that Jesus is God is that he is the closest person in the universe to the Father. Now, some people are very close to their fathers. Other people are not very close to their fathers. The father-child relationship doesn't automatically mean closeness, sadly. But the relationship between Jesus and the Father is the closest father-son relationship that's ever existed. So if we go back to verse 1 of John chapter 1, it says there that in the beginning was the Word. Remember, the Word is Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. See, this means that no one knows the Son like the Father. We can trust what God says about Jesus in the Bible. But at the same time, it means that no one knows the Father like the Son. It means we can trust what Jesus says about God as well. That's something that cannot be said about anyone else who claims to know about God. Whatever religious leader or philosopher or teacher you choose to follow who wants to tell you about God, they've got nothing on Jesus. Because Jesus is the closest person in the universe to God. He is the Son of the Father. No one knows God like Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus' sonship is about his likeness to the Father, his resemblance to the Father. People from the same family tend to have the same likeness. At this time of year, you know, families get together, and you can often tell who's related to one another. And if you've ever got the family photo albums out, and you, know, you can see which, which relatives you seem to look more like. Maybe it's the ears, maybe it's the hair. Um, but there's a family resemblance between members of the same family, and it's the same with Jesus, except we're not talking about what Jesus looks like or what God looks like. We're actually talking about character and personality. And this is John's point in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, some people will say, well, I don't believe in God because I've never seen him. And I'll only believe in God. If, he'll, if he would show himself to me, I'll believe in God. Well, if we want to see God, we only have to look at Jesus. On the pages of the Bible, as we see Jesus commanding creation, as we see him raising the dead, as we see him healing the sick, as we see him dominating demons and teaching God's word with authority and power, we're looking at God in human form. No one else can reveal God the way the Son can. He bears his Father's likeness, he, his Father's glory. He reveals his Father to the world's. That's the second thing we want to say. The next thing we want to say is about Jesus' origin in the Father. Now, this might sound a little bit complicated, but this is actually what it gets down to when we talk about Jesus being the only begotten Son of the Father. And in a moment, I want to find something that I had in my notes that I'd like to read for you. C.S. Lewis explains a little bit about what this actually means. Beget is not a word we use much anymore. It's, a, it's an old-fashioned word. Perhaps we're familiar with it from those famous verses uh, where Jesus says the, um, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. C.S. Lewis points out the difference between begetting on the one hand and making or creating on the other hand. I'll be completely honest, we're, we're ad-libbing as we go here, because I'm trying to remember what I had in my notes. Uh, there we go. There we go. He makes the point that we're not now thinking of the virgin birth when we talk about Jesus being the only begotten son of the Father. We don't mean that he became the only begotten son because he was born as a human male child uh, in, a, in a stable in Bethlehem. We're talking about something that happened, Lewis says, before nature was created, before time began, before all worlds, as Christ is begotten, not created. We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English. But to beget actually means to become the father of. To create, on the other hand, is to make. And the difference is this, he says. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man makes a wireless set, or he makes, make, may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say a statue. If he's very clever enough, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed, but it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. And this is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God. Just as what man begets is man, what God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. So what we mean when we say that Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father is that he actually finds his origin in God himself. He comes, as, as the ESV rightly says, he comes from within God. He wasn't made. God didn't make him as part of creation. And this is something that Muslims, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses find really, really hard to get their heads around. They reject it. But it's the only way you can explain what is going on in the Bible with Jesus if he is very really and truly God and finds his source, his origin, his, as they, a literal way of saying it, is his, he is uniquely generated from within God. We're talking about Jesus' divinity here, and no one is like the Father, like Jesus is. The next thing we want to say, the fourth thing, is about Jesus' inheritance from the Father. And this isn't actually in our passage in an explicit way today, but it's, it's there behind the idea of sonship, especially in the Bible. The idea that when the father of the family died, his property, his estate, would pass to his firstborn son. And so even while the father was still alive, it, it could be said that everything that belongs to the father belongs to the son. And so this idea of inheritance also stands behind Jesus being called the Son of God. It means that everything that belongs to God belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is why the writer to Hebrews 
can say at the beginning of the letter, that long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. See, very similar ideas to what John's using there, but it makes the point that God has appointed his son as the heir of all things. Just like today, uh, Prince Charles is the heir of Queen Elizabeth's kingdom. But in a much greater way, Jesus Christ is the heir of God's kingdom. Everything that belongs to God belongs to Jesus. And no one... No one has rights to God's kingdom the way that Jesus has rights to God's kingdom. Now, I realize we've done some heavy lifting already, and we've really just done a very brief flyover of some very, very deep truths of the Bible. But the point is this, that unless Jesus is actually who the Bible says he is at this point, unless he is truly the Son of God in the way the Bible means it, well, the gospel doesn't hold together. The gospel actually doesn't make any sense. It's incomplete if Jesus is not the Son of God. Uh, another Bible teacher, J.I. Packer, says, there is no illusion or deception in this, that the babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And this is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It's here that Jews and Muslims and Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses and many of those who feel the difficulties around ideas like the virgin birth, around Jesus' miracles, around what happened on the cross, around Jesus rising from the dead. It's here where they come unstuck. It is from, he says, misbelief or at least inadequate belief about what's going on at the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, friends, these other difficulties dissolve. Think about it like this. If Jesus had just been another man, you could safely ignore Jesus as a historical curiosity. He doesn't really matter. If Jesus was just a man, you could write his miracles off as either some creative storytelling or some, some trickery, some sleight of hand. If Jesus was just a man, well, his raising people from the dead and calming storms, well, that's just fantasy fiction. If Jesus was just a man, the idea of him rising from the dead, well, that's just something that someone's made up. Or maybe he's just risen from the dead in our hearts as an idea which lives on enduringly forever and makes us feel better. But if Jesus is truly the Son of God and everything the Bible says and means when it, when it says that, well, that means that, yes, he can raise the dead. Yes, he can heal the sick. Yes, he can command nature. Yes, he can tell demons to leave people. Yes, he can die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice because he has no sin of his own to pay for. And yes, he can rise from the dead because he is the son of God. He has a status with God that no one else can ever have. That's what the Bible means when it talks about Jesus as the son of God. Friends, it's not just a benign label. 
Now, Christmas is a lot about family. Uh, and it's about the family that we enjoy being with. It's about the family that we'd perhaps like to be with and can't. I know my, my wife and myself feel that with our family scattered across the world. It might be about the family that you don't really want to be with, but you have to be with anyway. The Christmas story is actually about family, but it's about that relationship that exists between the Son of God and God the Father. Because only in that relationship is the gospel, what, what, the, what Christmas is about, that's where it is absolutely completed. And you know, it's because Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's why his sonship makes our adoption into God's family possible. So that's why John says in chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's an invitation this morning to come to the Son of God, and there to be welcomed into God's family. As you consider Jesus this Christmas, as you consider Jesus the Son of God this Christmas, think about what the Bible really means when it says that he is the Son of the Father. And there's an invitation there to receive the Son and become children of God ourselves, having our sins forgiven, being reconciled to the Father beginning a new life in him forever. And if you're ready to do that today, it's very simple. There's just an A, B, C. First A is to admit that you're a sinner who needs God's forgiveness. Secondly, to believe. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again from the dead to give you new life in God's family forever. And thirdly, confess. Confess Jesus Christ as your King and ask him to give you everything you need to follow him. That's the invitation this morning to come to the Son of God. And that's something you can, you can pray to God and, and talk to God about. And if, you're, if you do that today, please tell someone about it. Tell, tell a Christian friend or come and tell one of us that you've began a new life in Jesus today as one of God's dearly loved children. You can come have a chat to me afterwards. If you've got any questions, you can come have a chat to Tim afterwards. You can also get in touch with us at the back page of the service outline. You'll find some information there. Um, you can get in touch with us and ask any questions you'd like or uh, just have someone to chat to. I've also got a little booklet that I would love to give you this morning. If you're thinking about these things, it's called How to Have a Happy Christmas. If you're wondering today even, how do I have a happy Christmas? Well, I'll give you one of these. You can read it and think about what it says. For now, though, how about we pray and we thank God for sending his son into the world for us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Father, help us to see beyond the manger and the shepherds and the stars and the wise men this Christmas and to see in the manger not just the Son of Mary but the Son of God. Father, help us to receive him, to believe in him, and to be your children forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, thanks. I'm going to invite Tim back up while I head back to the computer to get our next song going.